Hello, Canadian teen book lovers. This is our December podcast, and I am here with Sylvia McNichol, who has written several YA books. And Sylvia, would you like to say hello? Hi, everybody. Uh, Happy holiday soon. You'll all be off in school and hopefully reading my stories. (laughs) Um, Sylvia, every podcast I'd like to start by saying... Uh, with the exception of Indigenous people who have been here forever, I feel every family has a story about how they came to Canada, whether it was generations back or or more recent. So I'd like to ask you what your family's story is. Well, my parents are both from Germany. So uh, what always kind of amazes me is that after World War II, Uh, I guess uh, there wasn't a lot of food to eat. Things were hard in Germany. They decided to come to Canada. But, of course, Canada was, Canada and Germany were enemies at war. And and so it wasn't a very comfortable fit for us. Uh, The kids made fun of us and called us Nazis. I was born here. but uh, So I experienced that little bit of prejudice in small town Ontario. But then later we moved to Montreal and larger cities. So that wasn't an issue. But not until you moved to a bigger city. Yeah, it's funny. A small town, Ontario, they, they, I don't even know the history. Perhaps there were a lot of uh, young men lost to the war. I'm not sure. But uh, I, I have nothing but admiration for immigrants who come to this country, sometimes not even speaking the language as my parents did, and, and sometimes even being in some kind of negative spotlight. Certainly Germans after World War II are or anybody exp- uh, experiencing various phobias. Of, I don't know how they do it, the courage that it takes. Yeah, it does sound like your parents would have to be pretty brave to do that. Or foolish. <laughs> do you think they were foolish? I think there was a certain amount of the streets are paved with gold in North America. Uh, there was that ha- thing happening. And, and in Europe during wartime, it was awful, but I'm sure it was awful in Canada as well during wartime, rationing and things wasn't enough food. Right. But I guess it would seem like this whole removed society from the war. Yeah, because we don't have war on our territory, which is just marvelous. Just wonderful. We don't even realize until you go to another country how lucky Canada is. Yes. Or how lucky we are to live in Canada. So thanks, Mom and Dad. (laughs) Well, I know you've written so much more than what we're actually going to discuss today, but I did want to focus on, I suppose it would be four of your last five books because you do have the middle grade book in there. I have a middle grade series, The Great Mistake Mysteries, The Best Mistake, The Artsy Mistake, The Snake Mistake. So that's for like uh, hmm, eight to 12. So that's the one you're not focusing on, correct? (laughs) Right. But Hmm. you write for both, obviously, kids and teens. Do you have a preference? No, I, ha- I have to say one of the books that you, I know you wanted to talk about, Crush Candy Corpse, when it came out, it enjoyed wonderful success making a lot of the provincial choice lists, Ontario Library Association, Red Maple, uh, Manitoba Young Readers, and Saskatchewan. I'm not even going to get them right. It's a snow willow, I think. But what I didn't realize, I hadn't experienced the internet critiquing, shall we call it gently. So it was the first time I've had people 
people, maybe teens, maybe not even, comment on books and not necessarily a positive way. So I was horrified by it. And and I have a lot of grandchildren. I have nine grandchildren. And I walk my uh, grandson to school. So that's where we came out with dog walking. And I thought, good, I, I don't want, I don't want to face all this internet criticism. Now I understand uh, if you're not being criticized on the internet, I guess you don't exist. But it, mm-hmm. Crush Candy Corps, with all its success, it was hugely shocking to me to have kids be so negative sometimes on the... Uh, it got to the point where, oh, they don't like... They didn't like the color of my hair. What? <laughs> yeah, they said, yeah. Because I had the red streak to go with Crush Candy Corps. And so, yeah, so the kids, yeah. Well, it's awesome. I'm still waiting for that to come. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now it's, now it's gray silvers to go with body swap and ageism, right? So <laughs> I, I changed the look. I don't know what it'll change to next. No, but silver is perfect to put other colors in. Yeah, that's true. That is quite true. You're right. Great. I can always add some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that. Wow. You... So it was a reaction to, I don't want to write for teens anymore. They hate me. <laughs> and then I realized, no, they don't hate me. They just like to discuss negatively, I guess is the way. Critical. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes a little more than, yeah, I guess the internet gives a voice to people who are grumpy sometimes. It's not just giving the voice to the voiceless. It's giving the voice to the grump grumpies. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard a lot of authors say not to read Goodreads. Mm. Did you have you stopped or no? I uh, I read Goodreads, and I think Goodreads to a large extent has. Uh, but there might be. Ne- I don't mind a critical review. I mean, once on, on Goodreads, there was a review that was like four swear root words in a row. And I won't say them because I don't know if you have to bleep them out. But it was amazing. It was the first one for Best Friends Through Eternity. And I was going to a library, I think, in Coburg. And automatically, the comments from Goodreads were generated on the library. And, oh, of course, no. my target audiences. And, the you know, it's funny because the, the critical review was very, very critical. But it's still was written all right. If he hadn't have opened with the four swear words, it would have been fine. And I asked Goodreads to take the swear words down. And, and they said that I'd signed an agreement saying that uh, no censorship. And do I want to leave Goodreads? And then I thought, no. But somehow his review disappeared anyway. Oh, He was a 19-year-old and uh, he, he really didn't like Best Friends to Eternity. <laughs> yeah, although... Arguably, is not my yeah target audience audience exactly. Well, that's a thing. But I like Goodreads as a reader. But I'm discerning anyway. I like reading negative reviews and positive reviews and seeing where my ideas fit in 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 between. You know, as a writer, I'm not as critical as other people are of people's books. I like reading for the act of reading. And I look for moments that I like. I don't look for that all perfect book. And I don't, um, occasionally I will say, oh, I would have done that differently with that character. Or I wouldn't have given it away right there. But I just enjoy reading it. It doesn't have to be that ultimate five-star book. Plus, I think you can appreciate the amount of work that goes into Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Which not everyone understands. No. I keep saying, you know, even like the books that do super well, Versus the books that tank, I put the same amount of work in. 
I have no idea which ones people will love and which people won't love. And, and, you know, sometimes other countries pick up a book and then the kids in other countries love the book. They don't love it in Canada, but they love it in some other country. So, yeah. Do you have a favorite among your books? Do I have a favorite? Ah, mm, no. <laughs> Pretty much no. I guess it's, and I think everyone will say the same, it's always the latest book. So Body Swap is is the latest. But then I'm working on uh, something that, where a dog communicates and I, and I do love dogs a lot. And there are no dogs in bodies. Oh, there, wait, spoiler alert. There is one dog yeah. in <laughs> body swap. Yeah. Who I quite like. So body swap is my current favorite that's out and published just because it's my latest baby. Yeah. I was going to say, it'd probably be like picking a favorite child. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in terms of, uh, you know, once you write the book, too, your characters never write to you anymore. Um, the experiences that you get with each book, you never know. Because I love the one-on-one experience with the reader where you go into a bookstore and let's say you're signing books and, and maybe somebody doesn't buy one book, but they say, oh, I read that in grade five and I loved it. Yeah. Th- those little experiences are really wonderful. Because when you write, you really write for yourself all alone. There's sort of this feeling that nobody's going to read it. And you're always kind of a little shocked that somebody's read it. Right. How did you start writing? Well, um, of course, in grade four, we had to do composition, so old-fashioned. And, you know, once a week, you got to recopy it. The teacher would mark it all up in red. And then you got to draw a picture and correct it. So that's really the start. But, I don't know, 19... um, 88, yeah, around 1988, I took a writing course with Paul Kropp Oh yeah, at Sheridan College, and he asked what project we wanted to do, and uh, I wanted to write a novel. So he asked for an outline. Next week, I turned in an outline, and he was this sort of uh, sarcastic teacher. Oh, you're not going to have it done by this. And, and uh, in his sarcastic way, he goads you into doing something. And then we had this lifelong rapport, and sadly, he passed away last year, I think it was, of cancer. Right. So we lost one mentor and one wonderful writer. But that's how you got started. Yep. And that's then how it got... became a full-time... Full-time job, yes, as long as I ex- I'm willing to accept very little money. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I was able to, say, write and stay at home with my kids um, and not, say, use daycare. But uh, it was never that full-time income that brought in a Mercedes, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> it paid for braces and vacations and yeah. It always seems like you have interesting ideas and I just wonder where you get your inspiration from. <laughs> so are you asking where my ideas come from, Amy? That's the classic question. I love well, it. Yeah. Writer, yes, it is a very cliched question. Yeah. But I I find it fascinating because different writers have different answers and and some it's about their personal experiences and some it's about these these random things that kind of connected and I think it's all yeah I think every writer would say because uh, the question is where does the idea come from it it seems that uh, it's one idea and of course a novel is full of many characters and many ideas and so this character might be someone who 
yelled at you in the coffee line, or this character might be your son's teacher or something like that. So there's all those ideas. But um, I am an avid newspaper reader. And so I love the randomness of the newspaper. So that's different than going online and searching for a particular topic, right? You're just reading through the paper and suddenly I'll read about, oh, this man was caught at the airport with 52 turtles strapped to his leg. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) So that kind of amazing detail, I feel like I need to get it out of me and put it on paper. So a lot of my ideas will come from newspaper. And then the, the great thing about the newspaper is fairly current if you take a book or even a magazine is six months behind but the newspapers are daily i sure hope newspapers stay in business because yeah and then of course now i will research something that i'm interested more on the internet but a lot of things come from newspapers and a lot of things come from listening to other people's stories and just observing other people characters sounds like you have a great imagination to extrapolate Well, um, I think if I have a gift, it's not so much imagination, but empathy. Okay, so if I read a newspaper story and you'll find out that, I don't know, somebody shot someone and then I'll wonder why and then I'll be worried about the motivation and and not even shooting. That's that's such a violent thing. But, oh, the young man with the turtles to his eyes, why did he do that? Why didn't he need the money? You know, why didn't he take frogs? I don't know. My mind will spin well beyond the story and I'll have to explain it to myself and then it will go into a novel. But but I do feel a keen empathy with people and that. So it's not, I, I don't do the wild fantasy stories with dragons. It's usually realistic stories or emotional stories and stories with humor. Right. But driven by a natural sense of curiosity. Yeah, curiosity for sure. Always curiosity. And and uh, when I first started writing, I did work for newspapers freelance, but I did what I love best, interviewing authors. Oh, so I would wow. write about authors, yeah. How long did you do that for? Uh, I would say a couple years. I would interview authors for uh, uh, Canadian Authors Association and one time, I was all excited. I got to interview uh, Timothy Findlay, oh. and that was going to be really big because they were going to quote wire it unquote wire, which I think only just meant that I don't know if you faxed it or drove over the article. I don't even think there was such <laughs> thing as a wire. But I also had to write a story about a uh, doctor who uh, I think at the time handled children who had different special needs. And, and so uh, it was my job, of course, to take photographs. And, and this was in regular film. And I had a camera and they'd give me the film and then I would put it in a can and label it. So I labeled my Timothy Findlay. And Timothy Findlay wore a light blue jacket and he had wire rim glasses and a little ponytail, silver hair. So you have to picture this. And the doctor, the, the doctor of the children, of course, wore blazer with leather uh, on the on the elbows and a turtleneck and a beard, a very writerly look. So, of course, if you put the film in the little canister, you label the canister once the people who develop it dump the film, they no longer know who's who. So uh, Timothy Finley became this uh, 
as the CA, the Children's, uh, the, or the uh, Canadian Authors Association president said, oh, who is that devilishly handsome man? But it was the doctor, not Timothy. And uh, years later, I saw Timothy and I, always, I, I thought I would die. I just thought it was the worst thing that ever happened. And of course, everyone laughed. Nothing, nothing happened. What was the best interview you ever did? Best interview I ever did for writers. Oh, Fred Kerner. I liked Fred Kerner. I, Fred Kerner is Diane Kerner's dad. Now I know he's not a writer. Well, he is a writer. That's, that's wrong. He was, so Diane Kerner is scholastic publisher, right? Okay. Her father's Fred Kerner and he was the publisher of Reader's Digest. And I worked with him a lot at the Writers' Union. And, and so it wasn't an author interview per se. It was more he was speaking at the library and I was covering him. And he would he used to be the editor for Harlequin as well. Okay. And so he would speak on romance writing. So I remember I, I was covering the event. And the photo- this time the photographer came. I didn't have to take the pictures. And, uh, and the photographer said, Sylvia, Sylvia, chat him up because I don't want deer in the the headlights look you that was my job and and now i i remember this always when someone's taking a picture I always chat with them so that they don't look like that but um fred didn't need chatting up he just he was just such a fun guy and uh, years later we worked on uh, grievance not grievance but uh, contract committee at the writers union and we used to go to lunch all the time so uh, i fondly remember him yeah it was a good interview can't remember what i wrote about him <laughs> but uh, yes Cool. Well, your latest book, um, Body Swap, I really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Amy. I I think it offers a fresh perspective on... It's hard to know what to say without giving away too much of the book, but it does involve a body swap. Right. Freaky Friday meets Evan Almighty. That's, oh. what, that's what a reviewer said, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And with the aging population, I think it's it's it definitely gave me a new perspective into my own relationship with my grandmother. Oh, nice. I like that. Yeah. what she's experiencing as in her, her 80s. It's very enlightening, I thought. Mm, you know, as a young adult writer... I am older, so You're it, not that old. But I do feel like the fifteen-year-old trapped in the older body. Maybe not oh. an eighty-two-year-old body. So it was kind of a very natural thing to write to say, okay, because I am that fifty-year-old going, no, really, you know, this body, this is doing this, and I think a lot of us, time sort of speeds up, and then suddenly you're in this body that. Uh, yeah, that's older, and you, you still feel like that 12-year-old or that 13, wherever you're stuck in, because children's writers are always stuck in some certain age. And yeah, so then uh, you're, you're, you have body swapped, in a, in a sense. Happily, there's no teenager stuck in your body. It's just you stuck in your body. So you would be 15? Yeah, I guess so. You're pretty much 15, stuck 15. 15, you know, okay, aspirational 15, probably a 12-year-old because I'm a naive 15-year-old. There's 15-year-olds out there that are much more, uh, you know, savvy than I am, much more cool, you know, so on. So 
I may be the 12 year old, 15 year old. <laughs> yeah. I thought about that. I would, mm-hmm. I would go for 17 personally. Yeah. Oh, you think yeah. you, that you are 17? Yeah. 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 That okay. Would be, I think that would be my favorite age. Yeah. Oh, it's your favorite age too. Mm-hmm. Is not. You know, being 12 was not my favorite age. It was just where I was stuck. It was a why I like writing for that set as opposed to, say, the 9 to 11-year-old is the intensity of the feelings, the emotions that are so overwhelming. Um, You don't have any, I don't remember having any filter to to cope with those emotions. So, So that's a beautiful thing to be able to write about as opposed to adult novels where, so reined in. Yes, reined in. Yeah, that's it. Good. Yeah, because I was I was hunting for the one there, and also adult novels uh, don't have this. I I feel the rule is that you need to have a sense of hope in young people's books. Yes. So adult novels don't feel that same responsibility to to deliver hope. Oh. Kind of need hope. I, I mean, I, we're we're reading it for fun, right? We're not reading it to. Uh, to feel further depressed, right? Well, yeah. I'm not saying you shouldn't read a sad book, but it's funny you read a sad book and there's somehow there's a message of hope in it. Yeah. Yeah. There can be. It yeah. doesn't mean it's No, yeah. Be. Sad books, not, no. No, I, I completely agree. Yeah, because sometimes you're rooting for the character and, and yeah. that in itself is, is feels hopeful. But with the adult books, when they're just sort of slice of lifey, and then you get to the end and you've put in, I've read 400 pages and you're not even giving me a nice conclusion that I, I, you know, sitcom sewed up ending is that what I want? I know, but maybe something more than just slice of life. Yeah. So what do you read yourself? Everything. I'm indiscriminate reading. This may slay some people, but I have, uh, quite enjoyed and they're more difficult to read self-published books oh yeah because there's an authenticity to them they are not reined in by a publisher they're not told to unify their theme or not not that a publisher tells you that directly but we all work hard to try to get a certain shape to a book and that unshaped book sometimes can be very interesting so yeah sometimes i'll even read uh self-published books but uh I, I, when I was doing the young mystery series, I had been asked to be an Arthur Ellis judge. So I read 70 mysteries, adult mysteries in three months. Wow. So that's why I thought I'm going to get a mystery out of that if it kills me because it is killing me. (laughs) (laughs) You never did it again. Yeah. No, not yet. I said never again. And then the year after I say, well, maybe again, because they changed it at that point. They saved all the books till a certain point. Like January, okay, now. And they said 30 bucks. And then all of a sudden the boxes came and there were 70 books. And I think in terms of 70 kids' books, like two, 300 pages, no, they're 700 page books. Some of them, some of them are shorter. Wow. But, and then they all come in. And so, so it's, they, they had this starting line of January. Now they realize there's nothing wrong with giving the judges the books as they come in. So if three books are published in September, here's three books for you to read in October. And, and then the judge just keeps notes, I guess. Oh, well, that's good. That that makes sense, right? I mean, still, it's a, you have to like reading mysteries. And I do. And I like Canadian. I like Canadian set stories. Not that they were all Canadian set, but they were Canadian authored. Right. Do you feel like there's a way to tell that they're Canadian? 
We have a distinctive flavor. That's a good question. So many of them were set, but then, you know, there was Lynn, uh, Bar- Bar- Lynn, Lynn, Wood, Lynn Barclay. Barclay, sorry, yeah. and Joy Fielding. And there are, in, there are international bestsellers. They're, they're located everywhere. But Linwood used to live in Burlington, so I still, I still sense Burlington and Oak. Well, now he lives in Oakville. I sense Oakville in him. I feel there's Canadian and, um, yeah. Do I sense that they're Canadian? Yeah, I think I do. For the most part, they're set in Canada, but there's a Canadian thing about them. It seems to be a tricky question that we always have trouble answering. Whether there, whether there's a Canadian identity, you mean? Yes. Mm. It comes up again and again. Mm. Well, say so someone like Linwood, I feel that he needs to set in an American setting. And I think he is partially Canadian, uh, you know, uh, has dual citizenship. I was going to say half Canadian, half American. I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so to have a greater market, he sets in the U.S., but you can't take the candidate out of the, the boy. Right? Yeah. So I, I think there is something distinct. There's some kind of flavor. Yeah. Maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must have been a time, 70 bucks. Yeah. Wow. Well, I sort of timed it. I said, if I read four hours a day, I should be able to yep. get through it. <laughs> uh, and there were two other judges. So we came up with a strategy to handle it. So oh, say, you yeah. have to. Yeah, we had to. That yeah. many pages. Yeah, and it was shocking. What what was shocking to me is what people threw in as mysteries. It's like the publisher, oh, let's just throw it in because it's maybe a little mysterious. And they're no, this isn't a mysterious at all. I don't know, to find mystery. This is not one. You know. So. so you've worked with several publishers yourself. I have, yeah. And I guess I just wanted to go back to what you were saying about self-published books mm-hmm. having a kind of different scope or Mm -hmm. do you find that with different publishers like there's a distinct style do you well i'm not sure it's fair to ask if you prefer working with one over the other Uh, you know i've i prefer working with all of them at different points so you know say someone's like loves scholastic because the book goes in the book fair and the book club and i can I feel I can put my feet up and not have to publicize it. Um, I like small Canadian publishers because they're willing to take risks uh, so that the larger ones want uh, an author to come backed by lots of sales. And So if you happen to be on a red maple, then you can get to the bigger publisher. But if that's not a year you're on the red maple, then... Uh, so I really value small Canadian publishers now more than ever because it is tough times and uh, we get all these interesting subjects tackled, which we wouldn't if they were just the larger uh, and not just Scholastic. I'm not talking Scholastic as the larger one, but the other larger ones, the Penguins, the the Rambling Penguins and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. They, I, I do think that there is a feel to a, a mainstream large publisher book formula is the wrong word, but uh, yeah, there's something close to that a a format, a certain format that they want. Is that something you try for or, you know, you'd be shocked. And I think many readers would be shocked. 
that the writer just bloody well writes for themselves. They they just can't be bothered thinking about, you know. I mean, there may be some give and take. There might be an author, there might be a publisher who says, oh, geez, we'd really like a book about a dog. And you know, I'm all over dogs. So yeah. I would, I'd be there or I might negotiate some theme or something with them. But when I'm sitting writing at my desk, I do not think of anyone else except me. And what's amusing me right now? You know, what's, yeah. Inspiring you, getting mm-hmm. under your skin. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly, getting under my skin. It has to get under your skin enough to spend about a year of your life on it, right? At least. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then it comes back and back, you know, when, when it finally goes, you know, the agent may want you to do changes. And then after it goes to the publisher and the publisher wants you to make changes. And yeah, so you do visit those characters a lot. You really have to love them and love the story. Well, I would hope so. Mm-hmm. So, so when you write a story, you don't have a publisher in mind. Uh, no. Um, oh, that's an interesting question. When I sometimes, sometimes I just uh, it, and things have changed over my career. So, for one part of my career, for a large chunk, for many years, what paid the bills, I worked for uh, a book club in Scandinavia. Oh. Yes, called Staubenfeld. So the Bringing Up Beauty series is where it started. So Bringing Up Beauty, they bought it, Staubenfeld, through my agent. And then uh, if you remember, and you probably don't, you're too young, Stoddart went under and Stoddart had the rights to Bringing Up Beauty and I was writing a sequel. So instead of handing it to a Canadian publisher, well, we had the Norwegians waiting. So I started publishing directly to Norway. So when you you write a story, you send it as an attachment, and they like it or they don't, and they translate it into four or five languages. And, you know, you don't have to do author visits. You don't have to do signings. You get an income. And uh, after that, if Canada wants, like, or after during, we hold back English rights, and then the... um, the agent would sell it to Canada. So what the Norwegians wanted was exactly what fit with me. It was a 14-year-old girl, no older than 14, but always a 14-year-old girl. So it was never, during that time period, there were never any male protagonists. (laughs) So uh, now a couple of years ago, uh, that company was bought out by a Swedish publisher and they've gone in a different direction. So that's not the way I write anymore. But so in that sense, yes, I write totally for myself, but... For 10 years, it was probably for Norwegians. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. little known. So uh, Dying to Go Viral, which you mentioned, I think, um, yeah. was a huge hit in Norway. Really? Yes, it was, yeah. So, and I arguably, I think uh, the publisher Fitzhenry picked it up because they knew the sales were good in, uh, in Norway and Sweden. And, and it was published in Germany and Finland, too. But there, the numbers were normal, just in Norway and... Uh, yeah, Finland, the, Norway, and Sweden, sorry, the, the sales were very good for Dying to Go Viral. And, of course, for Bringing Up Beauty, they were very good there, too. But I did a whole series for them that never came to Canada. So I, there was a Last Chance for Paris, set in the Rockies, the ice fields of uh, Alberta. And uh, they bought it, and I was hooked on the characters. They, they were one-off books, but it was a girl named Zana, and she had a wolf dog named Paris. 
and uh, they would end up rescuing people and different things happen. It was almost like role-playing for myself. So I wrote these six books and the first one came to Canada and the other five just stayed in uh, Norway, Sweden. And I have my fans there and there was one young girl wrote me and said, uh, every summer I reread the series and I read the first one in English. When are the rest coming out? Oh, sadly, they're not coming out. So, uh, yeah, so that that's sort of defined. I'm not market pure. I'm not that. But uh, uh, when you're actually working, you can't be thinking about markets and worrying. And sometimes we do, but we, we can't be. You can't devote yourself to a story if you're thinking about publishers and that. And I do have an agent, and they're you know they they're helpful. They'll say, oh, this may be here, maybe there. Yeah, they help you with the work. Yeah, they, yeah. Um, agents. I know my young emerging writers always think, oh, I've got an agent. Yay! Now, <sighs> now it'll be easy street. Oh, no, no, you just get somebody um, knowledgeable in your corner. And uh, who knows, perhaps knows trends and, and also acts as a vetter for the publisher. So you'll still get no's. You'll get no's faster. Okay. Uh, if they if there is a courtroom issue, the, the agent goes to the court. I totally appreciate that because I don't think any writer has the money to hire a lawyer. So agencies act that way. Courtroom yeah, well, and it never gets to courtroom. I'm thinking in the case of Stoddard, it went to the courts. courts so uh, my agent was, was sitting there in the courtroom for me. Um, for other issues, like if, if you have a problem with your story, you can't make a deadline or something. And that hasn't happened to me. Uh, but but if it does, the, the agent is there on your side. Agent has total different role, I think, than what the emerging writer thinks. And, and I get why they feel that, because they think it's as hard, as difficult to find an agent as it is to get a publisher. So they feel that when they get an agent, that's synonymous with getting a publisher. And it's not. It's still, yeah. it means the agent thinks they can sell your work. That's what it means. Wow. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So dimes go viral. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, that was the book that really drew my attention to your work. Oh, really? Okay. Because it, it, it reminded me of a sort of darker version of, I don't know if you've heard of the Alice books by Phyllis Reynolds Naylor? Yes, I've read them. Oh, I, I have read them. I how does how does that well i'm glad you do and i love them too but i don't see the similarity at all which is interesting uh the father the brother okay all right yes yes yeah i love i loved alice she's just you know oh she has nobody to talk to about periods or anything and she oh that's right she has to talk to the father's girlfriend i see now i see the parallel yeah okay i see that now but it even though stuff happened to her, serious stuff didn't really happen to her. She was more like a feel-good girl next door, best friend you could read about. Right. Whereas Dying to Go Viral tackles some heavy issues and is more relevant 
to modern times with you know the whole theme of mm-hmm. a viral video right well um i have to tell you the origin of the premise uh again if you remember i was talking about last chance for paris and how it was the first of a series of six and only the first one came to Canada. And effectively that blocked the other five because you know what happens. You write a book and one publisher may love it and the other publisher hates it. Uh, You know, book two, someone else might've loved or, or maybe at least maybe not loved, but could have worked with it to get it. Or they never read past. Maybe book three would have been better. And we could have, you know, some of those books could have come to Canada. They were set in the Rockies and Alberta. So with my Norwegian editor, her name was Ellie. I said, you know, I'd like to come up with a premise. And the premise is this. I mean, I think everyone has to somehow make right in their mind what happens when someone dies. And I think we're such individuals So to say that there's a heaven where there's an angel with Philadelphia cream cheese or whatever, that's not going to be the same for everybody. So my idea was that, you know, uh, and and this is where the newspaper comes in. I can't stand it when young people die of stupid reasons. So this was, this is almost, the premise is almost young people die of stupid reasons.com. So dying to go viral, of course, in the opening chapter, she dies sketching or or skateboarding attached to a a car. But in every book that I was presenting Norway, the character would be different and would die first chapter and score and go to a different heaven because everybody has a different heaven and then score a week do over. And in that week, it would be different what they did. So dying to go viral was more. uh, here's a bucket list. This is what I want to get done within that framework. She's going to try to get it done. And by the way, I'm going to try to escape my fate too. So that was that book. But then best friends through eternity took a, is a similar premise. And by the way, the publisher was annoyed at me at that, but I, it, it is totally unique except that in chapter one, she uh, page takes a shortcut on the railroad during a snowstorm with earbuds in. She knows the schedule of the go train, but during a snowstorm, guess what? The schedules change. She gets hit by the train. She goes to a beach. So in um, each one, they go to a different one. The body swap is the amusement park. Right. Dying to go viral was a garden based on Sun Yatsen in Vancouver, because I thought that garden was amazing. So Best Friends Through Eternity was a beach because that's my favorite heaven. That's what it would be with the palm trees and everything. And then she meets a best friend who turns out uh, another adopted Chinese girl, Chinese-Canadian. And it turns out that they have a different relationship by the end of the book. It becomes a mystery. It becomes more about the adoption, foreign adoption, and the feelings behind foreign adoption than a bucket list. Which So Dying to Go Viral is like a bucket list. Best Friends Through Eternity is is exploring the idea of foreign adoption. And then we have, pardon, and secrets, yeah. And then we have uh, Body Swap, which explores ageism. But yeah, and and then there's another book that's in the pipelines that we're working on where, and still with the same premise, I guess, except different, where the girl thinks she's drowned and her dog has died, and then she comes back to life, and her dog is alive. But now her dog talks to her through her head. You know, they they communicate telepathically, and the dog's hilarious, so people will love it for the dog. But we're still working on that, so that'll be a while. But that was the premise. And the premise was so that if one publisher doesn't like this book, 
the other publisher will. It's not the same character. It's not the same, you know, so, and the, and the, the vehicle is the death, but certainly the book is not the death, if that makes sense to you. So it's kind of a series. It is kind of a weird series, but. But, but by different publishers. Yes, because everyone cherry picks. They like or they don't like, yeah, and there's no arguing with them. And and granted, I don't want a publisher to work on a book that they don't like to try to sell it right. if they don't like it. It's better to go to a publisher that absolutely loves a story. Yes, because otherwise then they're going to change it. Mm. Yeah. Maybe in ways that you're not on board with. Yeah, well, I don't know that it's the changing. It's the, uh, I've always felt, you know, even as an emerging writer, like uh, you go to, a, we used to have Book Expo and, and you'd go and sign at a certain time. You knew you weren't their favorite author because they had big, huge placards celebrating some other author. That's what I mean. So that if they're not on board with the book, they just take it out of loyalty. You're not going to be the author with the placard, you know, at the Book Expo, if we had a Book Expo. Right. Or, or an inspire. Yeah, something like that. You know, mm-hmm. Gordon Carmen comes and all of a sudden there's underwear all over the line. But <laughs> but you come and there's like, oh. <laughs> or there's a Mountie and your story's not about a Mountie. So, you know, they're not celebrating your story. <laughs> Gee, I can't even remember when they did celebrate my story. I don't know what they'd put up. but uh, mm. Hopefully not anyway. <laughs> I don't know if I'd want to be the author that gets underwear. <laughs> oh, yes. you want to be the author that gets something? Chocolate. Pardon? Chocolate, Chocolate set. I'm I'm with you there. Chocolate's good. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Or, or yeah. Okay, so it's yeah, because it is a little confusing. Is it a similar pre- premise? A total different story. It's a vehicle for a total different story. It's popping up in your writing. Yeah. It may not with, anymore. I don't know. Different publishers. Yeah. What do you think that's inspired by, though? What drives you to use this premise again and again? I remember clearly where it happened. You know, a friend of mine, a writer, lives out on the West Coast. And uh, she lived on one of the islands. And there was a real tragedy. There was a young doctor family to, Dr. Cup when they were flying out on a seaplane and it crashed right in front of their house and they were dead and she couldn't handle it. And I was on the phone with her and I just said, we need to, you know, we're getting older. We need to come up with a rationale of how to deal with death. And then I started to think what rationale, it's easy when you have religion, isn't it? You know, and uh, faith gives you something, but even faith, I do have a faith of something and I'm not sure what it is, but I do feel that we want a different heaven. We all see heaven differently. Let's face yeah. it, you and I would be in a library somewhere in the sky, right? Reading. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or someone else, I don't know, would be playing video games, I guess, or or playing a guitar or something. I don't know. Or just eating chocolate. Eating chocolate and reading. Uh-huh. Right, Amy? <laughs> well, you have to be careful not to get the chocolate on the book. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But otherwise, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I like how that brings it together and gives it a, a symmetry mm. mm-hmm. of your work. And then I always mix it up. Go ahead, be mixed up. I enjoy that. 
Crush Candy Corpse. Oh, yes. You get mixed up because that game came out at the same time. Yes, Crush Candy Corpse. Oh, yeah. And yeah. How, what's the game called? Candy Crush? Yeah, I think so. That's why people get confused. Yeah, yeah which is, well, also has death in it, but... That one wasn't inspired by that. That was something I was going through. That was my mom had Alzheimer's, and I took that very hard. And, and um, you know, you sh- when you go through something like that, it's so traumatic. We should be going to counseling in that, but we don't because we're so busy looking after that person and trying to squeeze life around it. That, you know, on the moments that you have away from the person who, you know, repeatedly people always make a big deal about repetition it's not the repetition it there's other things that 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 really are difficult to deal with for example like my mother um decided i was her mother and i it was an emotional thing because you want your own mother you don't want to be your mother's mother Uh, so anyway i had to deal with that some way so i guess when i write i i'm dealing I'm putting down feelings on the page that I can no longer store within myself. I have to explain them to myself. I've always liked Perry Mason and trials. So I, I, you know, Crush Candy Corpse was the trial thing. And that was a lot of research. I went to courtrooms and I had a fabulous lawyer helping me. So that was all good. But it is the Canadian justice system, which is a little different. The lawyers wear robes. Right. And they U.S. they don't wear robes yeah and I'm not sure how they deal with uh, manslaughter as as opposed to how Canada deals with manslaughter the definitions the variables you know plus how you deal with minors in the justice system yeah exactly yeah and that all that shifts too but I mean story is story so even if some of the legal things change over the years there's still the story and ultimately, it was a vehicle to help people such as myself with Alzheimer's, understand Alzheimer's, you know, and, and not have to actually be in the middle of the path, you know, so where you're in, if somebody is experiencing a loved one with Alzheimer's, they don't really want to read Crush Candy Corpse at that time. They want to read it well before and then, oh, yeah, no, this is happening. Because I had librarians, you know, because it wasn't nominated a librarian saying I couldn't read it now. Now I've read it, you know. So. Yeah, well, I know. different yeah. books are like that. Yeah. Some books are for people who are going through that particular issue in the moment. And mm-hmm. sometimes they're about educating people who might find themselves in that yes. position. Yeah. So different books have different purposes. And I think they're all... For me, empathy, developing empathy is key yeah. to fiction. And uh, and I discovered, you know, I went to Columbia recently for a book called Revenge on the Fly. And they asked me the theme and, and they asked me, why did I give them so many hardships? And of course, you give a character hardships because you want to create tension and conflict and all these things. But what I realized when I even started with my very first book, when I most wanted to give my young reader is resilience. So if you read about a character going through a tough situation, yours won't be as tough, hopefully. And and look, this character survived. Yeah. You too will survive. So that's the the gift I most want to give readers is resilience. Oh, I so agree. Yes, you need 
sometimes you need that story that shows you the way forward or that mm-hmm. there can be a way forward. Yeah, because Even when you're in the heart of something, you think this will... Certainly yeah. with Alzheimer's, I knew there was a finite ending, but I was caught in the middle and I couldn't see my way out of it. And Yeah, I'm sorry that I couldn't go back there with the patience that I have now. Revisit that and do it better. Do you agree, though? I mean... Say that story is story. Sometimes I feel like that's changed over the years. That story has sort of turned into something else. Like it has to be correct. Or you have to have personally experienced it to write about it. Or That certainly is a movement now. It's funny, I was just talking about that this morning with my publisher authenticity what I try to do um, is connect my personal when I give a proposal to a publisher that I try to show them my personal connections so currently I have nine grandchildren and two of them are experiencing uh, severe allergies anaphylactic it is very frightening to us so you know that that's coming up in my next books. There's going to be anaphylactic reactions. And, and you know, the most upsetting thing about these allergies is that you have a, you, you may buy a chocolate bar one day and it'll be perfectly fine for you. And then somehow the next day you have a reaction. Is that because you're having a reaction to something in it? Has it been somehow cross-contaminated? You never find the answer. All you know is you reach for your EpiPen and you're in the hospital. And I said chocolate bar could... Obviously, it's anything. Yeah. Uh, so that kind of reality where we want more. I think we all want clear definitions. Well, what are you allergic to? What shouldn't we have in the school or something like that? Whereas it seems a nebulous, scary thing. So, yeah, that that's that's probably what my next themes will be. In. But I forget what your question was, if there was one. <laughs> Does it make you afraid to tell a story? Oh, yes. I see. Yes. The authenticity angle that, uh, first of all, there's own voices. And here's my difficulty. So I just went to Columbia and inevitably every school, are you going to write about Columbia? Are you going to have a Colombian character? And at first my, my slant was very Canadian. Use your voice. You write, you write the story because I am there to encourage emerging writers. And I think Latin America needs its own voices in that. So I definitely would say that, but I could see the kids were not happy with that. So I changed it. I promised them that I would have a Colombian character. I said, I can't make them entirely Colombian because I've only been here 12 days. I will make them half Colombian and half Canadian. And and they love that. So what I want to say to the general reading public is children are asking, begging to be in my story. And, uh, I will put them in. I'm going to listen to the children. I'm not listening to the academics who tell me I have no right to do this. I will research. I will vet as best as I can. Uh, The characters will be authentic. But I also want to tell people that every person is individual. There is no one Colombian person, let's say. There is no one person with allergies. Everybody experiences them differently. 
So I think I have the, I have the freedom and the right to choose my own metaphors and similes. So I do feel there's a difficulty, but I'm just going to make my story the most authentic it can be uh, relative to what I want to write. What I feel compelled to write. It's not just I want to write about this. I'm not going to say, oh, oh, it's really trendy to write about a certain nationality. I'm going to research that and become that person. No, uh, what I feel compelled to write, I will continue to write in the way that uh, I am compelled to write it. Yes. Plus, as a reader, I think there are different kinds of authenticity. Mm -hmm. So factual authenticity. Yes, that's true. Quite true. Yeah. Authenticity and perspective. But sometimes I think what gets overlooked is emotional authenticity. Yes. And so with your books, with the empathy aspect, I like the emotional authenticity. Oh, thank you. Especially with body swap. Because you, you do, you really feel it. You feel what it's like to be an 82-year-old and the different challenges and having to deal with moving into a home potentially and your body and all these drugs and Mm -hmm. uh, stuff I could identify with in my 30s. (laughs) But yeah, I thought that really worked. And plus, you're right. I... I love that whole thing about feeling one age and then having your body keep going without you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then being like, wait, what, what happened? Yeah, how come our soul and our body, our souls and our bodies don't match? You're right. Yeah. yeah. So this is a story about that, except jump-started by another person. Yeah. It's very insightful. Yeah. Well, so- and the character is, is, is half black and half white, right? I mean... That's not the way I should have said it. <laughs> but, um, and I feel that is very, to me, I feel that's very Canadian that we are mixed. And that, if you if you create a mixed character, nobody can tell you, well, that's inauthentic because, again, it's the individual, right? I feel. So if you're half Irish, half French, Nobody can say, oh, that's not a realistic French person, because you can say, well, that's the Irish coming out, right? Right. I mean, I'm not going to steal someone's folktales. That's not what I will do. But but as I said, my readers want to be in my stories. They don't care what color my skin is or what my background is. They want to be seen in their stories. And and sometimes there'll be side characters or main characters and I always warn kids I'll oh, use my name use me use me I you know I like flawed characters do you mind being flawed you know because you might you might be the, the one girl I'm working on an escape room story and I said I need a mean girl and uh, you know if I use you your name is Cassie you're going to be the mean girl are you good with that and she said yeah yeah I want to be a mean girl okay so she's going to be in the story as the mean girl. Well, not exactly mean girl, but. So do you think it's more of a North American attitude? 
the authentic thing. Yeah. That's interesting. I wonder if it'll reach other countries. You think? I well, I kind of wonder if it's like. Are we first in line doing this thing, or a progression? Uh, and will others follow? Because is it something that arose from immigration? You know, you have me wondering. Well, it seems the way I explain it in my head is certain people are allowed to tell stories. And then in the beginning, they can tell any story they want because the people they're talking about can't tell their own stories yet. Oh, okay. But once they're able to start telling their own stories, that's when it kind of turns because if they can tell their own stories, then we should hear from them. Okay, so I'll give you a different perspective on that. I'm a writer and I'm a professional writer and I've written, I've done over 10,000 hours of writing. And I feel that if you take your average person and they tell me their story, I will write their story in way better form than they can ever achieve. So I'll give you a a sample or example. Um, When I wrote A Different Kind of Beauty, that is the sequel to Bringing Up Beauty, but in it you will meet a uh, boy who goes blind in one chapter. And of course, in the other chapter, you have Elizabeth raising a guide dog. So I researched this story with a, a woman named Angela. And I would interview her in the daytime. And then the next day I would read back the new scene, say, that where, where this story was in. So I took a lot of her anecdotes and we spent time together. And I spent a lot of time with different people who had sight issues. And, uh, and I combined a lot of things. But when I read it back to her, I just remember her gasping. And I realized she couldn't even say anything that I'd gotten it right. So I feel I have that skill. I'm not saying that somebody who is blind or whatever we call it, uh, challenged visually, can't write a better story than that. Maybe they can, but I do have the 10,000 hours. Right. So is it authenticity, authenticity versus a writing skill sometimes good to have both yes uh yeah but that's where you're involved in, in emerging writers yeah being able to help people develop the skills to there you go we've got a lot of of 10,000 hour writers or professional writers who are now partnering up with own voices to create new stories uh I wonder how that works out. Sometimes I'm sure it works out very well sometimes and very badly because we're all individuals and some of us don't play well together. Let's just face that. A writer is that individual. If we wanted to be a team of writers, we'd probably work on television where we got paid better, right? Yeah, because it is complicated. I again, as a reader, as a as a teenager, I was looking for books of about people like me, which was extremely difficult. Hard to see. 
to find. I'm waiting for you to write it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. Own voices, right? Yeah. But um, best friends through eternity. Mm -hmm. There's a transplant storyline. There, yes, there is A, a a missed opportunity. Yes. 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 And when I read it, wow. I mean, because I, I don't see that. I, <laughs> I don't get that in books. Just the fact that it was there was a novelty because it's, it's not there. And plus also in teen books, there's death in a dramatic way, but this exploration of the afterlife in your four no, now for three books, fourth book hopefully. I can't count, so don't 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 look to me. To <laughs> There's that exploration of of deeper things that I know I would have appreciated as a teen. It's making me one. You know, there was a time when I wanted to write about a friend of mine who had cerebral palsy. I know that's not your issue, but uh, I didn't do it, and I wish I had. <coughs> because in those days, there was no own voice. I could have. And there usually, there aren't a lot of those books, and cerebral palsy, like chronic illness, usually turns into terminal illness for the sake of I drama. I think my friend's still alive, I think she's, and she wanted to be an author, too. She... No, but that would be disability <laughs> Which would be different. Yeah, Mm -hmm. a main character living with a disability. Yes, it happens more now, but those books weren't there. As it happens more now, are you saying that there's more disability now or just more literature on disability? Or is there any yet? Amy, I think we need to write a book together if you can't do it yourself. (laughs) Or not can't do it yourself, but not don't have the discipline. Let's say it's different than the ability. I could be your taskmaster. I'm working on it. Are you? Okay. Yeah. You probably have a whole flock of writers hovering over you willing to help you, eh? <laughs> I wouldn't say a flock. But I I but that leads into the Yeah, I appreciated it because this sounds so bad, Sylvia, but... <laughs> I can't sound bad to it me. It makes me feel like one of the Colombian kids is like, put me in your story. <laughs> because... Well, and what do I say now to people? I, I still, you know, now I'm thinking, oh, I should have written the story about my friend. And now I feel I can't. I really feel I can't. I do feel I can't. For In, in that kind of situation, I do not feel, no matter how I research it, I wouldn't be able to do it unless I partnered with you or partnered with her. Well, yeah, but now we have own voices like uh, Christina Minaki. Mm-hmm. Have you read? Bernie I did Bob? read that book, and that's exactly yeah. an example of a novel where I would say that, uh, you know, so the, it doesn't have that mass market formatting to it. And so there's a lot of extraneous experience that doesn't perhaps tuck neatly into a theme almost like a sitcom like a major publisher has to have a very lovely packaged and it's not a sitcom not that but but and christine's story was bigger than that so it didn't fit with publishers 
norms and and so she did it on herself but i will say it probably won't reach i'm hoping she can figure out how to reach a larger market than you know it's hard enough to reach in canada especially to distribute to the kids who want to read you with a traditional publisher how do you do it when you're non when you're self-published yes it takes an incredible amount of fortitude yeah you want to write because you want to write you don't want to write you don't want to write so that you can be that person who does social media and 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 tries to get does all the minutiae behind the publishing scene that's for somebody who likes forms and that there are people who like organization and all that kind of stuff that's their job right if you self-publish then that's your job and then you don't even get to write but you do like the social aspect of being a writer a writer with your I love my writing friends. I went to Columbia and the first night the publisher invited a bunch of illustrators and uh, writers over and none of us spoke each other's language. So we tried to find a common language. It was hilarious. So we were talking. I was speaking French and my French is not the best, but when a Spanish person speaks French, it's slow enough that an English person speaking French can understand it. Um, we just had a wonderful time and I feel like I can go to anywhere in the world and I'll meet another writer and there's that instant connection. So I do like the social aspect of writing. And yes, I like Facebook. I, now I feel more connected with my writers on the West Coast and the East Coast and I can easily email them and, you know, pull their book out on the bookshelf. They can pull out mine. So yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, and there's the isolation of sitting there and writing. That's not, uh, but yeah, that's the uh, one of the best things about writing. Besides writing, is the friends, and and then the other thing has got to be the one-on-one connection. And I mean, I cannot. I know that here in Canada, anybody who does the forest of reading can experience adulation. Yeah, and I have done that. I have won the Silver Birch many years ago, but when I was in Colombia. Four times a day, it was like winning the silver birch. <laughs> that's this other country on the other. I can't imagine that. That's one book in Norway, in in Colombia, and in Norway, I've like twenty books. I mean, if if someone was to organize a tour back when they were in their heyday, imagine the adulation and all these weird part. Not not that Norway is weird or Colombia is weird, but certainly unique to us in Canada. It's amazing. Kind of like an alternate reality. Yeah, as again, and, and it's so strange because there you are sitting in your in your office, and you're writing entirely for yourself, and you're writing things that amuse you or make you cry. And if you're lucky, your book takes off in a spectacular way with a life of its own. It has no connection to you, almost. You know, but there is a disconnection too. So so. Revenge on the Fly or Venganza contra las Moscas in Colombia. I wrote that. It was published in 2014. We're talking 2018. Yeah. Um, it feels totally disconnected from me. And last year, too, when I went to Korea for it, again, you know, it feels like another entity. It doesn't feel like it's part of its mummy anymore. It's Yeah, it's like your, your kids have grown up and gone away. That's what exactly what it feels like. Yeah. Wow. A pretty spectacular feeling. 
Well, we're actually over an hour, Sylvia. Yeah. Well, let's just keep talking. Come to dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Wrap things up. But that was wonderful. I learned so much. And I just enjoy talking to you. I love talking to you. Your stories. Let's do panels. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'd be fun. Remember, we did a panel together and inspired. You didn't remember that, eh? Or did you? Uh, we did it, and it was Kevin Sylvester, yeah, and Teresa Toten. Dyer. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And, and Teresa, yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, that was great. Mm. I'd do more panels. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. Thanks. It was a lot of fun anytime. Um, well, I look forward to your next book. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't know. I don't know. Having the new book out is so much work all the time. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have a lot of time to write. No, yeah, you have to sit and sign and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. And since it's December, I hope everyone has a great holiday season. And And read lots of books, right, Amy? (laughs) On your school vacation. On your school vacation. That's true. I'm sure I could come up with a whole pile already. (laughs) And have a happy new year. Um, next month I will be back with Robin Stevenson to talk about activism and start the new year off on a hopeful note. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So until then, happy new year and happy reading. <laughs>